Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Michelle Hearn is a licensed and registered dietitian with over 11 years of clinical practice. In her career, she has had experience with acute, psychiatric, and outpatient care. After reviewing the extensive clinical trials about low-carbohydrate diets, she knew she had to spread the word. She has written the book, The Dietitian's Dilemma, detailing how the current nutritional guidelines are flawed and how an animal-based, low-carbohydrate diet can help restore proper human health. She is an avid runner, qualifying 12 times for a little race known as the Boston Marathon. Apparently, the marathon wasn't long enough, so she decided to win her first ultra-marathon in 2020, running 44.63 miles in a six-hour timed race. Wow. If you can catch her, <laughs> you can follow her at Run, Eat, Meet, Repeat on Instagram. But good luck keep keeping up with her. <laughs> Michelle Hearn, it's an honor to welcome you to the show. Hey, thank you so much. And thank you for that introduction. <laughs> I'm still not like fully convinced that I can drive 44.63 miles in six <laughs> hours. Uh, that's unverified at this point. Um, that's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's really amazing. Um, so uh, in our exchanges back and forth, you said that you knew South Jordan, Utah, which is uh, kind of bizarre. It's, a, I, I don't think, a very well-known kind of suburb of Salt Lake City. How did you end up uh, knowing South Jordan? Yeah, you know, so in 2014, I was actually um, working with a company where I was traveling quite a bit. And so we would go to different uh, lifetime fitnesses, actually, and us <laughs> presenting on products. And, uh, you know, I would do public speaking. And and so that was one of the places I flew into. I flew into Salt Lake. And then, you know, we kind of went around to different places in uh, in Utah. And I was struck. I mean, it's a very beautiful place that you live. It's, it's really. But, yeah, it is definitely like <laughs> probably not something that everybody knows about. Were you with Generation UCAN? I was. That was um, that was. One of the- <laughs> Nutrition company I was with. Wow, I was with Lifetime Fitness. I've met you in person. <laughs> oh no way! It that, is a small world. This is a small world. That is hilarious. Yeah, I ran the uh, metabolic program for Lifetime Fitness uh, in the Western United States for a few years. Um, I've I, I was with Lifetime Fitness for from like twelve uh, two thousand seven until uh, last year when the shutdown happened. That is hilarious. Okay. Yeah, then you know you've met me before. I've met you. That's so funny. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love podcasting. This is so fun. <laughs> and you're up in uh, you're up in Portland now. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually live right outside of Portland in Vancouver, Washington. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I have to ask everybody from Portland, and everybody has the same answer when I ask them: Is Portland like Portlandia? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is very weird up here, um, but no, I, I love it. You know, it's 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 so. Um, it's very kind of be yourself, uh, kind of do your own thing, but yeah, poor, it's, uh, that's pretty accurate. I would say. <laughs> that's awesome. I just imagine the scene where, um, it's all like dark and kind of like cloudy and there's like the group of people that's kind of sad and like one beam of light comes down and everybody runs over to that beam of light and throws a party and then the beam <laughs> of light goes away and like they chase it all across the city. <laughs> so that's funny. Pretty accurate. Yeah, definitely in the fall and winter, wow. you know, we definitely try to make a, um, concentrated effort to go visit family that lives down south. So (laughs) that's awesome. Well, that's great. 
Um, okay, so you wrote the book, The Dietitian's Dilemma. Uh, the book is incredible, and I would encourage anybody to go and either download it on Kindle, like I did, or go buy the actual physical book. It's it's very good. It's a very different style, but it's um, <clears throat> it's it's brought a lot of tears. <laughs> I have to say, it's very emotional and it's painful and it's really vulnerable. You decided to kind of talk about your history with an eating disorder, and boy, it's 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 kind of rough to read. It's, it's hard to hear about. And the depth of despair that you, you know, were in, it, it's just, it's really revealing. And I, I would like to go there if you would like to go there and kind of talk about your experience growing up and what that was like to have, have that eating disorder. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I really appreciate you letting me discuss that because, you know, like you and I were talking a little bit offline, I have read many books on eating disorders and I guess just to back up, if, um, if you guys aren't familiar with my history, um, when I was 12, I had a very serious eating disorder. I grew up, my my mother is bipolar and she was undiagnosed and unmedicated for most of my life. And so she really struggled with severe episodes of mania followed by depression. Um, she would often, you know, lock herself in a room for several days and just be crying or she was like constantly in motion. And it was just a very, you know, it's challenging thing to watch is that is you don't understand is a <laughs> four or five, six year old, like why, why is your mom not around? What's going on? Um, she also was very, she struggled with food. You know, she's, you know, was five foot four hundred pounds, very underweight, but was convinced she was too fat. And so from the time I was very young, I was getting these messages that, you know, food had a moral value, you know, you, anything that was like, cake, cookies, that is bad. And then like salad is good. And, uh, my father, um, was working just nonstop. I'm the youngest of four. And so, you know, he was really trying to just support our family and uh, wasn't around a lot either. So it was really challenging. And, you know, it was as I, um, you know, became an adolescent you know, at the age of 12, I started restricting calories and it, it happened very quickly, you know, and, and people asked me like, how did, how did, how did your parents not know? Or how did people not see? And just like many people with eating disorders, even at that very young age, I was, I was hiding, you know, I wore really baggy clothes. You know, we certainly didn't have social media or cameras or, you know, all this thing. So it's not like we were trading selfies or anything like that. You know, our family wasn't eating together. So nobody ever noticed that I wasn't eating. Um, and it really wasn't until I got very, very sick. Actually, I passed out at school that uh, my parents kind of took notice of what was going on. And so yeah. And I wanted to write that, that chapter. And I opened my book with my story, you know, sharing, having this really serious eating disorder. And I have a whole chapter on eating disorders because I'm going to challenge the current dogma of our treatment of eating disorders. Um, it's because I just didn't feel like we really discussed the depth of despair, the like hopelessness, the, you know, the, you really get to a point or most people I've spoke with get to a point that you just, you don't want to live anymore. You know, it's, it's a really sad statistic that, you know, people, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder. More wow. people die from anorexia than they do of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, you wow. know, schizoaffective disorder, anything. And a really sobering statistic, you know, they looked at a study, a, a meta-analysis, they looked at 36 different studies. And, you know, it was about 20% of people with anorexia died. And of those 20%, about half of them took their own life. Like it got to that point. It wasn't, you know, like obviously many died from, you know, complications with being underweight, you know, your heart stopped working, but yeah, about half of the people just can't live. And I've been there. I get it. I, I hear that. You know, I share in my story, the doctor actually told my parents that 
I wasn't going to make it. I was too far gone. You know, it gave, gave me about a 10% chance of surviving. And to be fair, you're like, oh my gosh, why would you say that in front of a 12 year old? They actually took my parents in a separate room and I kind of snuck in <laughs> to listen. Um, oh. I heard what they said. I was, a, I didn't want to write this and I didn't want to share that because I would have to admit that when I heard that I was grateful. I was so thankful. I was like, oh, thank God. I'm, it's almost over. My life is almost over. I don't have to live this way anymore. I don't have to, at the age of 12, I was grateful that I was, I, I thought I would be dying soon. And at that point, I also was well aware that I, I was causing suffering to my family. You know, I, I, I thought they would be much better without me. You know, I was going to be causing a financial strain with being in treatment. I knew I was making my parents sad. Um, and then, you know, my life just consisted of starving myself and obsessing about food. Like I didn't have any quality of life. So yeah, it's a hard thing. You know, my, I, I shared with people, my, my wife hates <laughs> to, she was, when she was helping me edit the book, she was like, I can't read this chapter. Like I just, it, it hurts me, you know? And it's not my goal to certainly to, to make people reading it feel angry or sad or hurt, but it, it was my hope that people connect because the people say like, I've been there. I felt that depth of despair, or maybe, maybe people are currently there. They're feeling that depth of despair saying I've been anorexic for a decade and I'm never going to get better. That's another really sad statistic. Statistically about 20% of people with anorexia spend their entire lives in and out of treatment, get a little better, come home back in the hospital, get a little better. The rate of relapse is estimated between 38 and 46% for all eating disorders. And they count relapse is actually going back into treatment. If we're counting just like re-engaging in behaviors, I'm going to say it's hundred percent. And I'm included in that statistic. Like I, one of the main things that I, I want to talk about, people ask me like, how is this book different? You know, there's all kinds of books on nutrition. I want to challenge the dogma of eating disorder and mental health treatment. I'm certainly challenging, you know, diabetics and diabetes treatments and heart disease treatments. And I have a whole chapter on, you know, the crazy story of how our nutrition guidelines came to be. But I just, I've never read and um, I've never seen anybody talk about eating disorders the way I wanted to. And so I wanted to validate the struggle. I wanted to um, let people with eating disorders know, I hear you, I see you, and I think we can do better. Wow. I mean, <laughs> it's, I, I can so much relate to your wife. Like, it's so hard to hear when it's a loved one that's telling you their past experience and saying like, I know what it feels like to feel like I don't matter or like the, the, the loneliness of like, if it'll be better, if I just go away, it's so hard. It's hard to hear. I have cried a lot <laughs> in the last yeah. few days before this and talking to my wife, Bethany, who suffered through this and she was in impatient at the Melrose for a little while. And it's, it's, it's very, very painful to hear about. So I completely relate to your wife, not wanting to hear it. And I agree with you, like hearing, you know, what you wanted to do with your book that I haven't found that either. And I think it's so important that you decided to be vulnerable and tell that story. So I, I so much appreciate that. And I'm so grateful that you decided to do that. How, how difficult was that for you? Um, you know, I've thought about, I've, I've started to write, uh, that chapter of my life story many times, actually just throughout my life, you know, I'm 37. Uh, so, you know, I, I struggled with, you know, obsessive eating disorder thoughts for many years. And I, when I got to the point of admitting that I, I, I wanted to die, like I, I was very happy to, to hear that. I just, I was like, I can't put this out on paper. You know, how, how as a professional, can I admit that, um, 
yeah, that I was that low or that sick. So it was really difficult. And it was also really difficult. I never wanted to, um, you know, as far as my family goes, I, I have a very good relationship with both of my parents. I didn't want to ever make it seem like I was blaming or shaming my mom or anybody else. Right. So, um, yeah, it was difficult and it was, um, scary. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> a lot of people who ever reads this is going to know more about me than I would, you know, probably tell people close to me, but, um, kind of the, the, the big decision of like, why, like, I kind of came back to like, what, what do I actually want to accomplish? Like if somebody asked me like, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Um, writing this book. Um, that was one of the big reasons was I wanted to offer people that had went through what I went through with eating disorder specifically hope. Because like you stated earlier, it is one of the most hopeless places I've ever been in. And I've certainly struggled with anxiety and depression. Um, but, you know, I, the thing that I believe I can speak most to is, you know, having, having severe anorexia to the point where, you know, I, I, the doctors didn't think I was going to survive. So I was like, if my story gives people hope, if somebody reads this or a parent reads this or a spouse reads this and they've been in and out of treatment and they've tried all kinds of things and they're like, they're just hopeless, you know, and I'm getting messages from people asking me questions because this isn't, you know, there's a lot of people suffering and struggling with eating disorders. And if there's something in my story that gives somebody hope and also gives you a different direction, like it's one thing maybe potentially to read an inspiring story and be like, oh, that's really interesting. But to say, okay, this is what I did. This is what could, and you know, I'm certainly throughout the book, we're going to advocate a low carb, high fat animal based diet. And, you know, am I saying that that's going to cure eating disorders. Absolutely not. But I'll make a case in the book that can, that can actually help, you know, pave the way for your body and your brain to heal. And then all the other steps you can take, whether what, you know, types of therapy and things, your, your, your brain can actually utilize that information. Right. Um, unfortunately, I believe the way that we're treating eating disorders, just all foods can fit standard American guidelines, carbohydrate heavy is really, um, you know, suppressing neurotransmitter. Well, we can go into that later, but preventing the brain from being able to actually recover. Yeah. I, I definitely want to talk about all of that. I, I want to talk about too, like you in the introduction, tell your story, but then you do such a great job telling other people's story. And in the chapter about eating disorders, you start out with a poem that is gut-wrenching. It's so hard to read. And then you see the very end where it says this is, uh, what was it? The story of Mary and, and she passed away at age 15 from bulimia. Yeah. Um, young lady. And, um, and yeah, I chose, I actually reached out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get a little emotional. reached out to her family. Um, and they asked that I didn't use her real name. So that is not her real name, mm. um, which is fine. Um, but she, I was, it, she was a few years older than me when I was in treatment and I, you know, I was 12 and she was 14 and she was just adamant that I was going to recover and she was not. And, uh, I remember thinking like, how does she know? How does she know that? Cause she, she was so smart and so witty and she did so well in recovery, but apparently that was her like third time in treatment. She, you know, seemed to do well in treatment, go home and then, you know, lose a bunch of weight, come back. Kind of like we talked about earlier, just constantly in and out of treatment. And, um, you know, then of course, you know, when I was uh, when she was 15. So that next year, you know, I got a, got a call that, you know, she had, she passed away during a bulimic episode. Oh um, it had a heart attack. Um, and so, you know, I, I wrote, you know, I, I've always liked to write. And when I was in college, I wrote a poem and I, I wrote about my struggles, you know, I mean, a lot of that stuff is in the poem is what 
kind of how I lived, you know, because even though, even though I became weight restored, I was taught you were always going to have obsessive thoughts around food, around, you know, obsessing about food. And I did, I did through most of my early adolescence. I was told like, that's what recovery is. Recovery is your weight restored, potentially, you don't act on behaviors, but they're always in your thoughts and your mind. And so, you know, I, uh, I, I wrote that because that was, that was kind of what, you know, some of the stuff I was struggling with. And that also was, um, you know, what I had kind of believed potentially was what was going on with her. And, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that when people read that, they, like you said, it's, it's, it's even hard sometimes when I think about it, you know, that basically you're just, you're, you're analyzing everything you do and you feel like a fraud. You're really trying to recover, but you don't even like yourself. And you, sometimes you want to get better. Sometimes you don't want to get better. And, you know, people are telling you that you're sick and you need to change and it's, it's hard. It's really hard. So, um, yeah, it was, once again, is just putting those things out there. It was my goal to connect. It was my goal for people to, to hear that and just to feel heard for someone say, Oh my God, somebody gets this. And if somebody gets this and they've gotten better, you know, what are they doing? Because, you know, like I said, I'm 37 and for the last 25 years I've, I've struggled and it wasn't until I learned like, why, why, why do I still have these obsessive racing thoughts around food? Is there something I can do to change that? that I actually feel that now I finally have food freedom and I finally (laughs) am no longer an anxious mess. Wow. What was that process like for you? What was it like to heal? Like what, what steps helped you the most? Yeah. Um, well, you know, so gosh, I try to give you the reader's digest version, but you know, basically in 2019 and you shared that I've, um, you know, I've run 12 marathons. I've qualified for Boston and I wanted to qualify for the Olympic trials. And so I was, putting in tons of miles, following a very high carbohydrate diet. I've done that through most of my, my life. And, uh, all of a sudden I just, I, my body stopped recovering well from workouts, you know, and I had people be like, Oh, you're, you're getting older. I was 36 at the time. Um, you know, I got my blood checked. Everything was fine. I, I talked to two different sports dietitians and they're like, Oh, you need to eat more carbohydrates. And at that time, once again, eating 350, almost 400 grams. So I ate more carbohydrates, trying to eat eight times a day. Um, I was, my anxiety went through the roof. I started having like suicidal ideation, like things I hadn't dealt with, um, to that degree in quite a while. And so, you know, I ended up kind of the, the change that would come to Jesus moment was I, uh, woke up at like two in the morning, searing muscle pain, back was spasming. And I went to Seven Eleven and got like 30 pounds of ice, put it in the bathtub, I'm sitting in the ice bath crying, like, what is going on? And, um, you know, my wife kind of came in and was like, you know, maybe we should do something different. And I was just like, yeah, this is it. I'm done running. This is ridiculous. Like I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't go that time too. I'd go through, you know, when you're training hard, you can go on 10, 15 mile runs. I, I couldn't make it more than two miles. I was breaking out cold sweats. And so I decided, you know, okay, well, fine. Let's, let's do a low carb diet. And it's so interesting because as a dietitian, I was afraid to do this. You know, I had, I had been so indoctrinated that we need all these carbs and, and they're important. And certainly as an active person, I thought I have to have carbohydrates. And so, but I was like, you know what, let's, let's give this a try. And as I was doing research, that's when I came across the carnivore diet, you know, which is an all animal based diet, um, no plants. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, <laughs> all right, I can get behind meat, I can get behind protein, but like no plants. That is nuts. Insanity, but, pure insanity. Yeah, absolute insanity. Like who would do that? That's the dumbest thing ever. But then, you know, I'd encourage anybody like, you know, I was like, 
a lot of times we're so polarized nowadays, right? Like we hear something, we see something and it's like, oh, that's brilliant or that's stupid. And so I immediately thought, well, that's stupid. But then I said, huh, I'm be curious. Let, let me do a tiny bit of research on this. And so first I just dug into the research on low carb, high fat diets. And I was just shocked. I mean, there's so much research on, you know, the benefits for potentially for mental health. You know, now we have a ketogenic and Alzheimer's disease. They improved. Um, we have tons of case studies for obesity, um, for diabetes. And then I kind of, you know, I started looking on Instagram and other places and all these people who followed this way of eating. I, I was just struck by how like their skin was great. They seemed happy. There was all these YouTubes. I'm like, well, these people are really happy. I'm not really happy. And so I just, you know, I reached out to a few people and said, Hey, you know what? This is who I am. This is my story. Um, and people were great. I had several people reach back out to me um, and say, Hey, you know, this is what I'm doing. It's really helped. And a lot of people had come from the standard American diet. So I was curious, you know, I was like, okay. And then I discovered Zach Bitter, who is the current hundred mile world record holder. And he's following a low carb diet. I'm like, no freaking way. Like, so I emailed him. And so at this point I was, you know, the wheels in my head were just turning. I was like, okay, well, you know, at this point I'm still working at the hospital, but I'm like, what, what's the worst thing that could happen if I follow a very, you know, an all carnivore diet? Cause my, my health is a mess. I couldn't, you know, I was cold sweats, pain. And so I just decided like, let's give this a try. And so, you know, I went and talked to my wife said, Hey, you know, this is what I want to do. And she was like, I won't say her exact words, basically said, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, no, uh, but once again, you know, she, she knew my history. She said, you know, this is eating disorder, Michelle, this is restrictive. You cannot do this. And so we thought about it. And finally she was like, all right, fine. You're an adult. You're going to quit. This is stupid. Um, and about, you know, a couple weeks into it, I started, I just noticed my muscle pain was gone, like absolutely gone. But I was like, Hey, I'm not running. So that makes sense. But then three weeks into it, she actually asked me, she's like, come sit with me. And she's like, you know, I'm, we've known each other for 11 years. She said, this is the best I've seen your anxiety in the 11 years I've known you. Wow. And she's like, I don't know if I like this yet, but something is going on. And so we were both like, whoa, this is, this is kind of crazy. And then about a week after that, um, she was, she was, uh, trying to read and I was bothering her and she was like, Hey, you know what? Why don't you go for a run? You got too much energy. I want to read. And it was, it was a weird moment. Cause I, I hadn't run in a month, you know, and I, I've been running since I was 14 <laughs> and now I'm, at that point I'm 36. And I was like, you know what? I kind of freaked out because the last time I tried to run, you know, I was getting cold sweats and all this muscle pain. And so I was like, you know what, whatever, I'm going to go jog around the block. It's fine. And I went and ran for an hour. I mean, that was almost day 30 of zero cards and I felt great. Wow. And so I came home and we were both like, what is this? You know? So it was a, it's just been such a wild journey and, you know, it went from, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll become a recreational runner to, I started to dream again. You know, I was like, what could I still be competitive? And <laughs> I was like, my poor wife, you know, she was, she that was thought, oh, this is going to be great. You're going to be able to run a few miles every day and that'll make you happy. And I was like, what if I run an ultra marathon, you know, <laughs> forget this 22 mile business, let's run 50 miles. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> wasn't thrilled about that idea at first, but it was kind of like, you know what, why don't you try? Why don't you see how you feel? And that's when I reached back out to Zach and he was willing to coach me. And I was like, you know what, let's see, let's see how this goes. Let's not register for a race yet. And, you know, I just, I felt great. I, I could not believe how much better I felt. And this was the point too, that I started adding carbohydrates back in. 
So I had 30 days, meat and fat, no carbs. And then I, you know, I kind of had a baseline. I'm at a baseline of about 50 grams of carbs a day. And I felt great. And, um, you know, we, we registered for our first race. Uh, it was supposed to be May of 2020. And <laughs> I know how that went. Yeah. Yeah. That, and see, this was such a crazy time because, you know, I got my health back. And of course, I got so excited in the hospital setting. And I was like, let's, let's, let's teach our diabetics this. Why are we telling our diabetics to eat all these carbs and insulin? Like here's all the clinical trials. And I was immediately told Michelle, no, you have to, you can only teach consistent carbohydrate education. These are our standards of practice. So here I am being told I have to teach people something that's potentially harmful to them. And, uh, I started to really struggle with that, you know? Um, and that was really hard. And then I was trying to focus on my running as well. And like you said, it just COVID hit. Um, all of a sudden I lost most of my dietitian hours and I was put in our call center and my only job, I was told, all right, you're no longer a dietitian. You're just taking calls and patients are going to order food. You just put it in the computer. And so all day long, I have diabetics calling in, okay, I'll have the chocolate cake and chips. And, you know, <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. This is awful. Um, so yeah, so, so it was you really, really, you quit. Yeah. Well, I, I, I stuck it out for a little while because I was, you know, I went from, you know, having a very stable job, 40 hours a week to being put in the call center, you know, random shifts to, um, I just can't. Yeah. I was like, I, I, I felt like I was hurting people. And so that was when, you know, I left, but between that time, I mean, I started writing my book in January, like once, you know, I got my health back about November, December. And every time I had a free moment, you know, I get so angry after my days of the hospital, I'd come home and I just like feverishly type like all this stuff, you know, it just, first chapter or first draft doesn't even need to make sense. My first draft actually was very angry. You'd be very glad that, wow. <laughs> you know, um, cause I was, I was angry at our healthcare system and I was angry at what I had seen. And I was angry at, you know, having worked in psychiatric units and seeing what we're feeding people and, you know, and I hope people who, if you've not spent a lot of time in the hospital, I'm not talking about like, we don't see like, oh, Mary or Bob's a little overweight. We see, hey, they have wounds down to the bone. I've seen people with strokes at the age of 40, people that are so fat, but under muscle, they can't walk a few steps to the bathroom, you know, rotting teeth, amputations. I had a guy who stepped on a piece of glass and didn't come in the hospital for seven days because he couldn't feel it in his foot because he has such diabetes and he was completely septic. Um, uh, massive, massive heart disease, people eating these, you know, really terrible plant-based diets and think that they're saving the world, you know? So it's, it was a struggle and I left and, um, yeah. And I, I took a job, uh, working with meat, working at the, in Portland, Oregon with a place called scratch meats. And it was amazing, you know, sourcing from local farms, making sausages and breaking down animals. And I just, I loved it. I was, it was such hard work too. It was very physical. I was like running and then going to a CrossFit workout. Um, (laughs) but people would ask me like, do you miss anything about being in the hospital? And I was like, Oh, I kind of miss the paycheck. But other than that, you know, it, uh, it just felt so happy and rewarding to, to be doing something that I believed in. But yeah. And during that time, you know, like, like we had said, it was COVID. So my race got canceled in May. So Zach and I kind of regrouped and we scheduled a, a race that was supposed to happen in October and that got canceled. <laughs> so <laughs> we're like, all right, well, is one more time, you know, I scheduled a race that was in November, November 7th, and it was supposed to happen right outside of Las Vegas. And I kind of figured like, if somebody, if something's going to go off, Las Vegas is a pretty good area, you know, that <laughs> probably will happen. 
And uh, I got very lucky. It was a cooler day. It ended up being about 68 degrees, but there was 22 mile an hour winds. <laughs> so oh, that was interesting. But yeah, I I felt great. I, I felt great the whole race. I've never run at that point more than a little over four hours and uh, felt great and consistent the whole time. You know, never ran out of energy, never hit the wall. Um, and I cried so hard after the end of that race. Uh, it was, uh, it was really special, you know, to run the whole time to cover a little over 44 miles, and, you know, it ended up being the second fast or second longest distance covered for a six hour race in 2020, which may not be sound impressive because there wasn't a whole lot of six hours that happened, but it would have been the, I think the third longest time in the last five years. Um, so yeah, it was just been a wild, crazy journey. And obviously during all that time, you know, continuing to use every opportunity, every free moment I had to network with the community, to dig into the clinical trials, to ask people for their testimonies, to make this book something that I think can help a lot of people. Wow. Okay. So I just, for the listener, like right now, as long as you're not driving, like, please, please, please download the book, get the book. If you can't do that, at least go to Michelle's Instagram and scroll back and go find that picture. That picture is something <laughs> special. It is so real. You, you, you can just feel like the relief, the, the journey, the, the, the accomplishment. It's just, it's so amazing. I'm so glad it's just one of those moments you're just so happy that was actually like captured and can live on. Yeah. You know, what's so funny too, is like my wife got that picture and I was at first, I was like, so I was like, get that off your phone. I was like, I'm a mess. And she was like, <laughs> like, stay away. You don't realize like, this is this kind of captured is the last year. Cause you know, I mean, officially she's rode this roller coaster with me from basically kind of like losing my job. I, I lost almost all of my hours and then I had to be in the call center and then I quit and it was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this financially? All right, we'll figure it out to, I'm going to try to produce this book. Well, is anybody going to read it? And then, you know, is this going to work? You know, I've had, I've had several, um, you know, you're always going to get negative people be like, oh, this diet's going to kill your heart or, oh, this will never work for your running. Um, but I was just, and I would tell anybody to do this. I was so focused on the process. I'm not necessarily worried about like, you know, what it's life. You're going to have good days, bad days, great runs, terrible runs, whatever. But I just kind of fell in love with, um, what I was doing. And I would say this way of eating, you know, I, my, I was so calm. I was satiated. I finally had enough nutrition. You know, when you're eating a really animal-based diet, you're getting that iron and zinc and B12. And I, um, everything in my life got better. I was a better wife. I was a better employee. I was, I started to like myself. I was liking what I was doing. Um, it really helped me kind of pave the way to deal with some things I hadn't dealt with throughout my life. And I just cannot tell you how grateful I am for, um, you know, just, just this, for the, for the opportunity to, for change, for real sustainable change and to be able to come on podcasts like yours and talk about it. And, um, you know, just to give people hope, you know, and you know, if people, somebody might be listening and be like, Oh my God, I never want to run. That's fine. That's great. You know what? I believe what your nutrition should do for you. You know, I only have two things. I, I want my, my nutrition to do for me. Um, I want it to fuel my passion, which is my distance running. And I want to help other people. So, I mean, your passion could just be, I'm a parent or I'm a business owner. I'm a lawyer. I'm a, you know, carpenter, whatever it is, you know, we, you should be able to eat and move on with your life. 
but so much of America and the world eats in a way that just keeps us like in prison. It's like you eat and then, oh my God, if I don't eat two hours later, I'm hangry, dizzy, hungry. I'm constantly thinking about food. Humans were not designed to be that way. You know, we were designed to eat and move on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I basically felt kind of like most of my life, I was just in a prison, like constantly thinking about it, obsessing about it, worrying about it. And I cannot tell you how freeing it is. And that's, that's another thing. I mean, I briefly talked about it. People say, oh, this is so restrictive. Oh, Michelle, uh, how could you ever suggest such a restrictive life or restrictive way of eating for someone with an eating disorder? And to that, I would say, you know, you, any, you could make anything restrictive. And I never want someone to, to take what I'm saying and, you know, start measuring out, you know, animal products or whatever. But to me, having my life back is the least restrictive thing possible, right? I, how I lived was restrictive. There's nothing restrictive about being free from anxiety, running without pain, um, being able to go hang out with friends and not obsess about food or what I'm eating. I no longer have, you know, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, all those things that you just deal with anxiety. Um, I'm not, I'm, I can handle stress. I mean, that's another thing we could talk about, you know, the current standard American diet, when you eat a lot of, um, processed carbohydrates and seed oils. It actually shifts the neurotransmitters in your brain. This is not something we teach a lot of people. Um, specifically glutamate. That's a very powerful neurotransmitter. You know, they found le- really high levels of glutamate in suicide victims, people with depression, people with major mental disorders have really high levels of glutamate. And there's many things that can cause that. I mean, stress, um, certain drugs like cocaine or crystal meth. But interestingly, processed foods do the exact same thing. And when glutamate is high, it actually prevents um, brain-derived neurotropic factor from working correctly. And that's, I mean, we can get in the chemistry of that, but that's kind of long and boring. But basically, you know, the brain-derived neurotropic factor is responsible for your brain coping with stress. So you really need that working effectively. You know, I feel like nowadays, I even worry about our young people. It's like, my goodness, you know, you a breakup or something and like send people over the edge. Like we, as humans, we have to be able to cope with stress. We have to be able to take in new information and let our brains rewire. And if you're constantly eating a lot of processed foods and a lot of sugar, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible to do that. So hence why I'm suggesting people that are dealing with uh, bulimia, binge eating disorder, major mental disorders, giving a low carb -carb or ketogenic um, way of eating a try can be a really powerful tool. This is so consistent, so consistent with so many people that we talk to. We just had João Franco um, on our show. He's in Portugal. He has the Instagram page, um, Carnivore I Am. And he mm. talked about how when he switched to Carnivore, he was like his spirituality increased. He was a better husband. He was more caring and giving. And now he like coaches people for free. He's got this amazing page that he just shares information for free. And all of our guests, it's so consistent. They change their way of eating. They're so happy and grateful and mindful. Like I I just think like even myself, like today, it's it's freezing cold. <laughs> it's like the second day of spring. I just wanted to go on a damn bike ride, but it's it's like cold and icy. So I went on my morning yeah. walk after my meditation and like I'm walking around looking at robins singing and ducks <laughs> are swimming around. And like yeah. there's so much 
beauty and joy that I appreciate that I would have never been able to do before. And that's the number one thing that I noticed when I switched from, you know, kind of low carb keto to more carnivore is my ability to deal with stress and just the, the just joy of being alive. It's so much higher. Yeah. It's amazing. It almost sounds hokey if you, if you haven't experienced totally. it, like I saw say it out loud. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this sounds like, like an infomercial, but it, it's true. And I, one of my, my theory, I mean, we have really good research from uh, Dr. Georgia Ede and Dr. Chris Palmer on this is I, I, I believe too, it's the influx of animal products, you know, getting that zinc, that B12 and that folate. Um, and then also removing a lot of the plant products. Cause for me, you know, I had always eaten meat throughout my life, except for when I was in, you know, high school, I, I went through this like vegetarian phase. But as a runner, I was eating so much oats, seeds, vegetables, that a lot of those things have anti-nutrients, things like phytic acid, specifically in like oats and seeds. Well, what does that do? That binds with iron and calcium. So it doesn't matter how much you're taking in if your body can't absorb it, right? So, um, you know, for me, really removing a lot of those plant foods, and it's so counterintuitive. As a dietitian, I was told vegetables are great. All vegetables, all the time. Great, 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 great. Fiber, great. But if you think about it, like it's every species has a diet, right? Species specific. We, my house, we have like a mini zoo. I've got a dog. We have chickens. um, (laughs) We have a tortoise. We feed the tortoise, Gertie, very differently than we feed the dog, right? Gertie gets leaves. The dog gets meat. And humans are the same way. We evolved on meat and fat. And did we eat plants? Absolutely. Depending on where you lived in relationship to the equator um, and when plants were available. Yeah, we certainly ate some fruits. We have evidence we ate some tubers and some um, vegetables, but they were very small, minimal carbs, really, you know, very, they don't look anything like they do today. Right. So most of the calories and the nutrition was taken in through meat and fat, you know, and I feel like probably one of the biggest myths we have in nutrition today is um, like, for example, like if a product has something like spinach, for example, just because spinach has, um, let's just say a cup of spinach has six milligrams of iron per cup, just because it has six milligrams of iron does not mean your body can utilize and absorb that. Thank and you. That does, say that, not, say that one more time. Thank you. Say that again. That's so important. Just because a, and this is, this is especially prevalent in plants, right? Just because a product has, um, like say spinach, six milligrams of iron per cup, um, and don't email me y'all. If you pack it down, you can get six <laughs> milligrams. Obviously it may have a little less if it's whatever. Um, just because it has six milligrams per cup, that doesn't mean your body utilizes and absorbs six milligrams of iron per cup. Beautiful. And why, why is that? Because it's called bioavailability. That is, can my body utilize and absorb this? And that is one of the huge problems with a lot of plant foods is your body cannot utilize and absorb it. For example, spinach, your body can only absorb 1.7% of the iron that's available in spinach. So for example, that'd be like, you know, if I write you a check for a thousand dollars and you're like, Oh, awesome. Michelle wrote me a check for a thousand dollars and you go to cash it and it bounces. They're like, she only has $17 in her bank account. It doesn't matter how much it's uh, this check says it matters. Can you access the funds? Can I use it? And so then people might say like, okay, well, I'll just eat a ton more spinach. Well, here's the problem. Plants have things called anti-nutrients, <laughs> things that can potentially injure your body. Spinach is very high in oxalates. Um, you know, when we know oxalic acid or oxalates, um, is <laughs> you eat too much of that is a major cause of kidney stones can also be a cause of a lot of overall muscle pain. 
So, you know, I think we've done a very poor job of encouraging people to eat as many plants as possible. But in reality, I think plants should be a small supplement to an overall animal-based diet. Most people can tolerate some plants, not everybody. Some people do just fine, no plants in their diet. But I think plants should be a small amount. What can I tolerate? Not as much as possible. <laughs> Agreed. Wow. That's so well explained. Thank you so much for going there. You also mentioned earlier the nutritional guidelines, and you do have a whole chapter on it. And I find this endlessly fascinating. And you went to a place um, where Vinny Tortorich also went in his fantastic documentary, Fat. Can you tell the story of like where some of our nutritional guidelines came from? Because I think a lot of people would be floored if they actually knew where some of this stuff came from. Yeah, it's a really crazy story. Like it kind of sounds <laughs> like this like science fiction, but a little bit of fact to make it sound true. It's it's wild. Um, it's hard to summarize quickly, but basically it started, I mean... It started with this woman um, named Ellen White, and she believed that she had a vision from God. She actually, in her life, believes she received, I think, like 2,000 visions. And she believed that God told her that um, humans shouldn't eat meat, that only eat plants. And she went on to start um, basically an institution, a, a teaching institution, where they did medical evangelism. They, they taught people like, okay, this is what you're going to have to do. It's only plants. Um, and she actually had a young apprentice. Uh, his name was John Kellogg's um, mm. that ended up with her. And he, they believed that meat may, gave you lessful thoughts. It made you um, horny and want to masturbate. Perish the thought, right? So they just, they created a bunch of, it's called anti-aphrodisiacs. And so they took, things like, um, you know, plant-based wheat proteins and made them into like meat substitutes, kind of the original, you know, meat substitute stuff. And they made breakfast cereals. Like, so instead of eating like eggs and stuff, you're going to eat our corn, you know, with stuff and you're going to eat our, you know, wheat textured stuff. And they wrote, she, this Ellen wrote a whole book about all these really wild ideas. Like humans weren't meant to digest this. And it's like, there's no fact to it. And, uh, actually hired a guy to prove that, um, plant-based products had B12 because that was a, originally, you know, nutrition, people were kind of concerned, like, Hey, we're concerned about B12. And so they tested all these products and guess what? There's no B12 in plant food. So they ended up, he falsified a statement saying like, look, uh, as long as you don't eat too much sugar, you're fine. You can get enough B12. And so that was kind of the beginning. And this institution ended up being able, got certified to teach dietetics students. So that was the beginning. And it's the seven day, you know, they started the seven day Adventist church, which is still like a vegetarian, um, I believe. Uh, I don't know if it's vegetarian, but um, I think many of their members are vegetarian. And then at the same time, you had just some crazy things going on in the world. Yeah, World War II started. And in World War II, you know, at first we were just going to try to grow more corn for our allies. And so farmers got these subsidies and they were super psyched. And then it was like, oh my gosh, now the U S is entering the war. We need more corn. Um, and they actually, the government tried to rescind some of these subsidies after, you know, after the war and farmers were like, uh, -uh no way, you know, we <laughs> we're doing well, we're going corn, we're making money. Some of them are actually still around today. And so now we have all this corn, like we had a lot of excess corn. So it was like, well, crap, what do we do with all this corn. And, uh, 
So then we just started feeding our cattle more corn. We started putting corn into everything. It started to go into biscuits and some of these, you know, cereals. And uh, we replaced our cooking oils. It used to just be tallow and animal fats with corn oils. Um, yeah, which of course, you know, is probably the worst, one of the worst things you can do for your health. Totally. And then, and then, you know, and then you have Ansel Keys. You have the, what he's considered the first nutritional scientist that, um, you know, America started to worry a little bit around the, you know, fifties and sixties about heart disease. And Ansel Keys went and studied 22 countries. And it was kind of his hypothesis that, you know, saturated fat and products are bad for your heart. Cause if you look just in like a clogged artery, it looks like saturated fat, right? It looks like just this big, you know, so he went out to prove this and he was super disappointed because it was like, well, crap, he studied 22 countries. 15 of the countries he studied ate a ton of animal products and had really good health. And then he found seven that had some higher animal products and bad health. So, you know, what should you do? You should leave your hypothesis and be like, well, this doesn't work. But what he ended up doing was he just didn't include those 15 countries. He's like, we'll just do the seven. And so I can prove my hypothesis is right. So he basically kind of forged this huge hypothesis, you know, basically falsified research, or I guess he didn't falsify that research, but he left out two thirds of the countries and he published the study saying, yeah, saturated fat, this is what's causing, you know, coronary artery disease. And then we also had, you know, they found out a few years ago that two Harvard, um, nutrition experts were paid the equivalent of $48,000 by the sugar organization to throw saturated fat under the bus and say that sugar was fine. It was all saturated fats fault, even though there wasn't the studies to do that. And at that time in the sixties, you didn't have to disclose where your funding was coming from. So it wasn't until obviously decades later, we found out like, holy shit, this was funded by the sugar industry. Right. Um, so here you go, you have is coming in, you have all this corn and then you have, you know, the sugar industry. And so, and then, you know, you fast forward to Vietnam and, uh, you know, president Nixon, things were crazy. He wanted to get reelected. It was a tumultuous time in the, our country history. So he hires this guy named Earl Butts. I love that last name. Um, <laughs> and says, Hey dude, help me. Like, how can we get votes? And Earl's like, you've got to drive the price of food down. People will vote for you if you drive the price of food down. And he's like, well, how do we do this? We have all this corn, but we're kind of like tapped out, you know, we're feeding it to every animal and we just still have too much. So Earl flew to Japan to hear about this amazing technology that was going to revolutionize the food industry. And they could turn corn into a product called high fructose corn syrup. And guess what? Now we have high fructose corn syrup in the U.S. It's one third the cost of sugar. It's super cheap. Tastes like sugar. But guess what? Not only does it taste like sugar, it actually extends the shelf life of food. So now every single food in the store that never had high fructose corn syrup is being injected with high fructose corn syrup to make it last longer. And then everyone's now afraid of fat. And so manufacturers are like, well, what do we do? How do we, how do we make things taste good if, uh, if we're taking out all the fat at high fructose corn syrup? And so obviously, you know, then it continues on and, um, you know, you can read about the, the McGovern uh, committee and how they got involved. And then I guess the, probably the most important thing to kind of wrap that up is, uh, the Academy of Nutrition, which is the governing board of all dietitians. Um, in 1995, they were sponsored by Coca-Cola, Betty Crocker, Soy Joy. As of today, they're sponsored by General Mills, um, Splenda, GlaxoKline or GlaxoSmithKline, which is a pharmaceutical company, um, Frito-Lay, PepsiCo. So yeah. And those are the people that make our, um, 
you know, the nutrition guidelines, those are the people that are in charge of the dietitian education and continuing education. Uh, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And if you look at any chart, you know, since the nutrition guidelines were released, obesity and diabetes, depression, um, have increased exponentially. So that's, we've shared this quote on the show before from fiction writer, Tom Clancy, where he says the only difference between fiction and nonfiction is that fiction has to make sense. <laughs> like it's so unbelievable. It it has to be true because you can't make that up. Yeah, it's really really bad. And then, you know, it what what's interesting to me is that, you know, we've had major retractions, right? Like in 2016, um, you know, they they revealed. They said, "Hey, you know what? Saturated fat is not the cause of heart disease." These people were paid a ton, not a ton, but they were paid money to throw sugar under the bus. Nutrition guidelines didn't change. We had a major statement from um, the Heart Association that said we do not have enough evidence to um, in, to tell people to reduce saturated fat. Nutrition guidelines didn't change. And people ask me, like, well, why? Why is this not changing if we know this or if this is the way people are supposed to eat? And, you know, I'm guessing many of your listeners know um, or can can guess, but it all, you guys, it has to do with money. You have to be an intelligent human and, um, consumer of information, there is no money in keeping people healthy. That's right. If you are dead, I don't make any money off you. So I can't kill you. But if you're sick, if you're perpetually sick, if you're obese, diabetic, kidney failure, I'm going to make a ton of money off of you because you're going to be in the hospital. And so it's really, really sad and really unfortunate. And these, these guidelines and this dogma is so powerful that every, and I, and I guess I should preface this thing too, that like, I do not believe for a second that doctors, dietitians, nurses, that nobody goes you know, or is talking about nutrition with like malintentions, right? It's not like they're telling their patient, like eat lots of fruits and vegetables, thinking that they're telling them hurtful information. Um, it's just, we just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. So um, to me, we have to get back to common sense, to an evolutionary diet, to a primal diet, you know, you can't ask people to follow a low fat, you know, high fruit and vegetable diet. That's not satiating. That doesn't provide enough uh, amino acids, vitamins, or minerals. You have to eat in a way to where you're not hungry, to where your body has the proper nutrition, um, or you're going to constantly be failing. Right. So, mm. so that's, that is my hope. And my goal is just to provide an alternative option. Mm. I love that. I have a, a question for you on something you've spoken out about recently. We had a dietitian um, that worked at our our gym several years ago, and she didn't last very long, and her clients didn't ever get <laughs> very good results. And the quote was something like, "Nutrition, kind of like it, it can be variable, and you can have moderation, and sometimes it's about enjoying ice cream with your family, and sometimes you." eat too much and sometimes you don't eat enough and that's okay. And, and like, I, I kind of sort of don't have a problem with the words, but I have a big problem with the messaging, the signaling of that. Can you talk about like moderation with nutrition and, and, you know, the post you made and, and what you've included in the book about that? <laughs> yeah. To be really honest with you, when you said that, I kind of wanted to like pick my phone up and throw it across the room. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a big problem with moderation and not that, um, you know, some people will come at me and say, well, I can moderate. Well, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. I'm very glad you can. But here's the problem with the moderation. First of all, nobody knows what the hell it means. It has no definition, right? Like, does it mean I have something once a day, once a month, once a year, twice a day? 
Um, and a big problem with moderation, and this is another problem I have with the book Intuitive Eating. Like I understand and I respect what they were going for. Hey, we want you to trust your body, but you cannot intuitively eat carbohydrate, most carbohydrates and certainly not processed carbohydrates. Why can't you intuitively eat those? Okay, we'll take ice cream. You know, uh, well, ice cream may not be the best one because you could argue it's high in fat. Let's take a, a bagel. You know, you eat a bagel, blood sugar increases. What happens when blood sugar increases? Insulin comes in. Insulin's a hormone that stops the breakdown of fat, right? So you're super overweight, grab a bagel, blood sugar goes up. Now you can't break down your own body fat. Blood sugar crashes. You've just had a three or 400 calorie bagel. You're hungry in two hours, you know? Also eating that bagel is going to shift the neurotransmitter glutamate in your brain. You're going to be a little bit anxious and stressed out. So if intuitive eating or moderation would be like, oh, I need to trust my body. I'm hungry again. Are you, are you really, you just didn't give your body, you give your body 400 calories of eggs or steak. You're going to be fine for five or six hours, not 20 or 30 minutes. Or, you know, in that case, I said like an hour, two hours. So I have a big problem with that. I think when we tell people eat this, eat this in moderation, it doesn't, it's not helpful. That's the big problem. Thank you. And a lot of people cannot moderate processed carbohydrates, you know, and I'm not anti-carbohydrate at all. And I realize that there are certain situations carbohydrates are essential. If you are someone who is very underweight, um, recovering from like a major surgery, burns, whatever, I'm not trying to tell you any carbohydrates. Most of the people we see in the hospital are overweight, diabetic. You, you know, it is time to remove carbohydrates from the diet. Thank you. Instead of telling people to moderate carbohydrates, if you're overweight, you need to really think about like eliminating these things you know, start to ponder, like, why do I have these things? And carbohydrates are a non-essential macronutrient. What does that mean? You will die without protein. You will die without fat. You can live your entire life without carbohydrates, you know? And so I feel like we set people up to be in this constant spiral of, you know, okay, I want to eat in moderation. Oh, I have a cookie. Oh goodness. You know, I, now I kind of want another one. Oh, and then I feel guilty. Oh, I'm going to restrict tomorrow. Oh, now I'm hungry. Now I'm going to eat this and that. Stop playing games. Stop obsessing back and forth all the time. You know, it's just a way to set yourself up to feel like a failure, to constantly be stopping your body from burning fat. So you're not going to lose weight. And then to just not make any progress. And I worry that a lot of dietitians, I've shared on other podcasts that I, throughout my career, about 60% of the dietitians I worked with are overweight or obese. And so I kind of think it's like, you almost have to start believing that yourself. It's like, well, I can't moderate carbohydrates, so I can't expect my, my patients to. So it's always this kind of game, like, oh, no one really knows what we're doing. Just kind of eat ice cream and have fun, la la la. You know, it's, it's really sad. It's like, we've accepted this kind of like mediocrity when it's like, no, why don't you just eat like humans were supposed to eat? You know, why don't we, why don't we start with this foundation of meat and fat? You know, why don't we start with this is, this is what we're, is going to be the best and most nourishing thing for me. And then let's see how things go. You know, if your goals and your life changes, certainly as I'm running a lot more, my carbohydrate intake increases, but let's, let's start here, you know, and, and if you are so, I think you need to take a step back. If you're so addicted to carbohydrates, the idea of giving up sugar, giving up carbohydrates then get with somebody, you know, get, get with a therapist, get with a mental health provider, talk to a friend, you know, develop some emotional management skills. You know, we, we do a terrible job. This could be a whole separate podcast about growing up, um, 
<laughs> I've shared before that, you know, in my household, things were clearly tumultuous. Um, when my mom was struggling or angry, she didn't go, wow, Shell, I'm upset. Let's go for a walk. And then I'm going to write in my journal. You know, it was throwing things and screaming. And it's like, you got to figure out how to deal with your shit. And if you're dealing with it with sugar and with carbs, not only are you not dealing with it, you're going to be setting your brain up to not be able to process your stress, you know? So I think dietitians are doing a terrible job. I just had a conversation with um, a nutritional um, therapy practitioner. And if somebody, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, wow, Michelle, I think you're awesome. I want you to coach me. I don't do a whole lot of coaching or online consulting, but I have a couple of people I work with. I will recommend you to. And when you, when you, these people, these nutrition therapy practitioners and these health coaches, they're doing so much better than a lot of dietitians. They're like really digging into root causes. They're looking at blood sugar stability. So, um, yeah, I just, I get really upset when I, when I hear dietitians and people say that, cause I just think like, like you said, it's not helpful and it's really setting people up to fail. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is so well explained. When I think of moderation, I think about the line that literally wraps around the building on the soda store every afternoon, right around 3 PM at, you know, a few hours after people have already eaten a meal, presumably lunch and they're hungry for more. And now they're buying a bucket of soda with added sugar into it and sugar cookies, you know, for a few bucks, it's, it's insanity to tell those people that they need to be moderate. It just, it's, it's not helpful. It doesn't work. It's crazy. Absolute insanity. Your book is amazing. The dietitian dietitian's dilemma. It's so good. It's very well written. You've included great pictures, great stories, real people. It's easy to understand. I can't recommend it highly enough. You are so vulnerable in the book and talk about yourself, your life being painfully cold, feeling absolutely lonely, those depths of despair. I, I would, you know, we normally ask, um, our guests, one simple takeaway that they can apply, but I, I want to go back and, you know, to somebody who is struggling with eating or an eating disorder, what is one simple thing you would like to tell that person to do? Oh gosh, to do. Um, my first thought was just like, you know, taking it, I would first just take a deep breath and realize like it will get better. Like it's not, it's sounds maybe it sounds cliche or whatever, but I mean, I I'm here to tell you there is a beautiful life on the other side of this. Um, and as far, I guess it, it would really depend like where you're at. Like if you are at the point where you are just completely broken and completely, um, gosh, I, it depends if you're, if you're not medically, if you're, me, if you're not medically stable, then I would, I mean, the first thing you need to do is get medically stable, right? You need to get to a hospital. You need to be medically stable before you can do anything. But then after that, I mean, let, I would really encourage you to, to take some time, weigh the pros and cons. It, would it make sense to adopt an animal-based diet? You know, if you've been dealing with, you know, if you're binging and purging, if you're just binging, if you're restricting, would it make sense to give something different a try? And if you think like, yes, it would, I, why not? I mean, I've been doing the same thing and I'm, you know, that's definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Then, you know, reach out to me, reach out to these people in my book that are coaches. Every person in this book, I know I've, you know, I've vetted, I believe in, I trust in, um, get some help. And, you know, it doesn't, a lot of these coaching, it's not even, it's not even that expensive. You know, obviously if you go through like a traditional medical program, it's going to be incredibly expensive, but you know, get some help, believe, give yourself an opportunity because if you change the way you're eating and while you're doing this, you know, you're going to address some of the, your trauma and other things. I promise you, 
in six months, your life could look completely different. I like, like we were saying easy earlier, it almost sounds hokey. Like three weeks after following this way of eating, my anxiety got better. Like it, it sounds cheesy. You know, people listen to this. I've struggled for years and years and years. I had too, but, um, yeah. And please like, you know, I, I I'm really active on Instagram. I get back to all my uh, messages as, as fast as I can. So there is hope there's healing. The first step, if you are medically compromised, you have to take care of that first. You know, you can't be super dangerously underweight and start something new. But if you're at a place where you are medically stable, please weigh the pros and cons and, you know, reach out to me or somebody will get you in the right direction. That's beautiful. I, I love that so much. Michelle Hearn, what an incredible conversation. This has been absolutely amazing. It's important. It's relevant. It's so needed right now. I just, I so much appreciate the work that you've done, the career that you've had, the life that you've lived and being willing to share it, to have this savage life where you quit your job because it wasn't right for you and you're making your own way and sharing your message and running way too fast and way too far, <laughs> all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful for you and, and for your work and for taking the time to appear on our show today. It's really meaningful. And, and again, I'm just, I'm so grateful. Where do you want people to go to find you and to find your amazing book, The Dietitian's Dilemma? Yeah. So the book is on Amazon, you know, just type in Dietitian's Dilemma on Amazon. You know, I have a paperback. I also have the ebook. Um, and we all, we will be recording. We actually have just set up a recording for audible. Awesome. So it should later in the summer we'll be, we'll be, um, yeah, I've had people request that. So that's the next thing that's coming, but, um, the dietitians dilemma.net is my website, but yeah, if you want to hit me up, if you're interested, please follow me on Instagram. I am on Twitter. I'm not on there as much Michelle Hearn RD. Um, but yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. So run, eat, meet, repeat. Um, and like I said, please feel free. If you have questions, you have concerns, you have a loved one, you just need to be pointed in the right direction. I'm happy to help you out. That's fantastic. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. I can tell you just starting to like get like more active on social media. Like it's so hard. Instagram, I don't understand. And Twitter just seems like mostly mean. <laughs> it's been really hard to try to figure out. Uh, Michelle Hearn, thank you again so much for coming on to our show today. Your your message is really important. I I, I just want to say, like, I, I normally listen to books. I don't have a lot of time to sit down and read. And um, th this is one that I felt was important to buy and to sit down and read. And it, it was very important. And for somebody who has, you know, a loved one close to me that struggled with an eating disorder, this is so important and amazing. And I'm just so grateful for you and everything you've done. So thank you so much for everything. And thank you for appearing on our show today. You are so welcome. Thanks again for having me on. It's been an absolute honor. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.